Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Well, good morning. Um, I'm not a complete stranger. My name is Harrison. I've been here for the uh, past six years with my wife, Alex. And here in the past six months, we've uh, been uh, joined by Nora, our first daughter, which has just been super exciting. Uh, what an amazing year it has been for us. But uh, here we are again. The end of the year has snuck up on every single one of us. But I don't know why, and I don't know about you, but once I get uh, to the end of the year, I finally realize that it's been racing through, and I get a sense of excitement. I start feeling the weight of the previous year's worries and, and failed workout programs start to slip off my shoulders. And there's an exciting chance of newness. I don't know if you guys get that same feeling, but that new year, new me vibe starts to kick in, and we all start making plans for what we can change about ourselves here in the next few weeks. I mean, the new year is only three weeks away, but why change today what we can change in three weeks from now? (laughs) So we start to plan changes, tomorrow's changes, and soon there's a sense of excitement back in the air. But this excitement also starts to feel a lot more like stress and anxiety in the midst of the holiday hustle and bustle. It starts to feel like added pressure to perform. And as the tempo of life cranks up as we near the finish line of the year, uh, that new year, new me starts to weigh heavy on our hearts. And so what do we, as followers of Christ, do to stay grounded in this season? And that's where Advent comes into play. Advent... It's a time of intentionality to slow our hearts down and to help us remember the reason for the season. Now, Advent comes around once a year and we spend the weeks leading up to Christmas focusing on the promise fulfilled, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. We spend these four weeks focusing on the hope, love, and joy and peace that, come from, that comes from what Jesus brings us. Now, technically, our hearts need reminding of this, not just once a year at the end of the year, but all the time, every day, in fact. It's kind of like flossing your teeth. Well, I know life is busy, but you're supposed to do it more than once every six months when you see your dental hygienist. But I guess it's better than no flossing, I guess. But this season of Advent is a time when we are reminded about what our hearts are really wanting. Again, the hustle and bustle of the holiday season and our desire for newness and change is really just the world trying to steal our heart's hope, love, joy, and peace. And so Advent is a time when we ask the Holy Spirit to convict and to testify to our hearts about the truth of what really matters, the coming of the King of Kings in the most humble form of a baby. So as we enter this time of Advent, our prayers are that the Holy Spirit would start to soften your heart and tug you back to a proper rest by reminding us the Savior who came and who is coming again. And so last week, Clayton guided our overworked and stressed out hearts back to where our true joy comes from. We saw as he read through the story of Luke and the birth of Jesus, how each person who heard the news, who they were either eagerly awaiting or just told, and how they responded. They responded in song and praise. They immediately ran out into the streets to proclaim the name and the good news that they had heard. Or they even did flips in their mother's wombs in the presence of their king. 
And it's good to be reminded of this joy because it's so easy to sit through life on autopilot and just cruise. And so again, Advent is a season of reminding of where our hearts, of reminding our hearts of where it's joy, hope, peace, and love comes from. And so this week we're going to be looking at where our, uh, where our hope comes from. And we're going to look a little bit at the differences between the worldly and the biblical hopes and why one is better than the other. I'll pray for us quick. Holy Father, thank you for gathering us uh, this morning. Thank you for the music. Thank you for your good news that we get to uh, sing and proclaim to one another. Lord, be uh, with us now as we uh, dive into uh, the hope that we find in your son, Jesus. Amen. So what brings us back here every Sunday morning? Is it tradition, the sense of camaraderie we get, or that emotional feeling we get when we sing Oceans? So why, as the world around us slowly cranks the chaos knob to 11, do we find ourselves coming here week after week? Is it really worth everything that we give up? Like, this religion stuff is kind of a drag. Like, shouldn't we just keep running after getting ours? You know, like, treat yourself. That's a pretty common thing these days. Is Jesus really worth all the generational waiting through our suffering? So in two weeks... Wouldn't it be way easier to just stay home, sleep in an open presence with the family on Christmas Day instead of coming to church? So that was a lot of questions, I know, and I promise I'm going to answer them. But I want to take us on a little bit of a journey first and look at what the world has to offer us as far as what we can hope in. So another question, what do you hope for? I hope I get the barista that doesn't screw up my order. Or I hope I don't wake the baby which is something that I've come to learn over the past six months. I had no idea how loud everything sounds, like putting on a pair of jeans in the morning. Oh my gosh. I might as well using a jackhammer in the bedroom. It's terrifying. But what else do we hope for? More serious things as well, right? Like, I hope I don't make a mistake. I hope I'm accepted. I hope that I'm seen. Our hearts are always going to long for stability, from the seemingly mundane comforts of the world all the way to the more uh, serious life-sustaining securities. Our hearts' hopes and desires have conditioned us to desire more from a world that's increasing with opportunity, but we then see them dashed upon the rocks of life's unforeseen disasters. We've been conditioned to build our hopes on these worldly means, and I can't fault you that, and I'm just as guilty This place we live in, this earth, this floating rock hurtling through space, it's our only home. And so naturally, we desire comfort. We want to make the best of what we have. And so we want to have the protections and the securities to do so. And so we, like the generations before us and the generation before them and the one before them, worked hard to to build these securities, to save enough money, to, to make a better world for their children. And over time, we've gotten much, much better at this. And now we pour our efforts into our education and jobs, our 401ks, our emergency funds, our house, our life insurance. But disaster still strikes, does it not? We also live in a time where government actually has the ability to protect its people. Now, whether or not it chooses to do so is an entirely different conversation. But the foundation of this country that we live in was so hopeful because it was new year, new government, 
and that was made to give people the protection of their life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And in theory, this sounded great, but sit through a history lesson, and we're going to realize just how this didn't play out for everyone in the same way. And today's political parties continue to fight it out, claiming that their way of thinking and interpretation is what will grant us the best way to protections of our freedoms, to do what you want and when you want. And when it doesn't work, we vote again, we protest, and even start revolutions. And we've shed so much blood, sweat, and tears over uh, the last few hundred years, working hard to create layers of securities to place our hopes in, but the tyrants still rule. Now, don't get me wrong, none of this stuff, education or, or government or insurance is bad per se, but where has focusing all of our blood, sweat, and tears on our self-made hopes and securities gotten us? Generation after generation of different cultures all across the world have had their turn to make things right and to put us at ease, but we've ended up stuck in the same broken cycle. And so do we continue to put our hopes into broken systems and broken promises? Some are going to say, just give it more time, and we'll eventually get it right. And evolutionarily speaking, that's the answer. Just give it more time, and things are going to get better. We're going to get smarter. Our problems are going to get easier to solve. And this is what the Age of Enlightenment was all about. In the 16 and 1700s, philosophers theorized that with focused time and effort, we're going to gain more knowledge, and we will eventually rid the world of ignorance, and all that will be left is wisdom, prosperity, and thus flourishing as people. And can you tell me how that's gone? Do you, after, year, after hundreds of years of progress, feel at ease and ready to place all your hopes in that knowledge? Again, having sat through a few history classes, I've learned that people were jerks, are jerks, and are going to continue to be jerks despite all of the knowledge that we've gained. And now we even have access and the means to access all of this knowledge at the push of a button. In my pocket is a device that can look up any bit of conceivable information. And I could, in theory, learn and know everything, but instead I look up funny cat videos and killer memes with it. So are we better off placing our hopes in this pursuit of knowledge? Does our knowledge translate to wisdom? I don't believe it does. The progress of mankind over the past millennia has not resulted in any difference in our hearts or our actions. Yes, the world looks different. Yes, we have antibiotics and vaccines to make us live longer. Yes, we have indoor plumbing and 5G. But despite all of this, life is going to life hard. Tyrants are still among us, and not just the ones who lead countries to war against one another, but the tyrants that rule inside of our hearts. And looking to the history of the Israelites, we can see that they struggled with the same thing, same issues before Christ and after Christ. They had the presence of God leading them through the desert, splitting the Red Sea, miracles right in front of their eyes, and yet they placed their hopes in everything but him. In fact, just a few short months into their journey, they wanted to go back to slavery because at least there they had a full belly. And, once, and later on, once they settled into their promised land, they again looked elsewhere for their hopes and they begged God for a king because everyone else is doing it. And so God gave them what they so desperately wanted. 
And after one heck of a roller coaster ride of tyrants and prophets and captivity, they eventually found themselves under Roman rule and hear the hope of a revolutionary Messiah that would crush their captors, that would cut the knees and legs out from underneath the Roman Empire. It ran like a fire through their hearts. But that fire did nothing but consume and confuse, and it left a smoke screen that blinded them. And when the time came for the promised Messiah, they missed it. So we can see that our hopes and life securities, government and knowledge, isn't really hope. It's all just the roll of the dice, wishful thinking. We cross our fingers and, li- and hope that life doesn't hit us hard in the face, or at least it hits us here because we're prepared for it and we know that it's coming. So is it worth hoping in anything at all? So I love metal music, <laughs> and I'm acutely aware that the high-energy vocals aren't for everyone, but like any other style of music or art, it's just another way to convey a message. You know, lyrics are a glimpse into the heart and mind of the artist. And one of the bands that I listen to is called Architects. And a few years ago, they went through a pretty difficult time. Their lead guitarist was diagnosed with uh, metastatic melanoma. And for a few years, he fought well, but eventually it came to the point that there was nothing left to do. And so they wrote one last album together as a full band. And on this album, one of the songs was called Gone with the Wind. And here the guitarist, who was, fa- who was fighting the cancer, he wrote lyrics about how while he was going through his treatment, one of his friends told him, my friend, hope is a prison. And in the rest of the song, Tom unpacks the meaning about how hope trapped him and made him feel, like, uh, feel the, the futility of life. And the hope that he would get better was just a vapor vanishing in the wind. And even if he did beat his cancer and did continue to live, he would just die later on in life. And death is actually the only guarantee in this life. Everything else is just luck of the draw, wishful thinking. Some of you might say, well, those are just the musings of a depressed and dying man. I have hope in future generations on this planet. I have hope that we can leave something good and our kind will live on. But again, that's just wishful thinking. Now, do you guys remember learning about the Voyager spacecraft in school? Some of you, maybe? All right, cool. I want to talk about space for a second. I really like space, too. (laughs) So back in the late 70s, NASA wanted to study the outer planets. Those are the ones out past beyond Mars, past the, the asteroid belt. And so they had a very narrow window of opportunity to do this because only every 160 years or so, those outer planets would be in a position that they could bounce from one planet to next and take pictures of them. And so they launched Voyager 1 and 2, and they were a a huge success. They did flybys of these planets, took pictures, took readings. We learned all about the the rings on Saturn, the the moons surrounding Jupiter. We learned about their atmospheres, and it it was incredible. And as their journey was coming to an end, they decided to just continue on and send them out into interstellar space. This is the area beyond the rock that we call Pluto. And just before they, they slipped past this, they sent one last command before they powered everything down. Uh, they had the probe turn around and take a family portrait of the universe. They wanted to try and get, or not the universe, the solar system. They tried to get every planet in this picture 
and most of the pictures didn't turn out well. The, the sun was really bright, apparently, and it washed a lot of the stuff out. But there was one picture in particular that was snapped four billion miles away from us. The picture shows the vast emptiness of space, and there, floating in a single sunbeam, was a pale blue dot, an insignificant partial pixel of information against a backdrop of a fraction of a fraction of the vastness of the universe. And this point was Earth. This inspired Carl Sagan, a NASA engineer who was actually on the Voyager program, to write a book called The Pale Blue Dot. And here's an excerpt of what, what kind of the feelings he had first initially had when he saw this picture. He writes, our posturings and imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity and all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. And throughout the rest of the book, he goes on to stress the importance of being kind to one another and to defend this pale blue dot because it's the only place that we can call home. All the wars and kings and tyrants and good and bad people have lived their lives out on this insignificant speck in the vastness of the universe. Again, our progress as a people has taken us far, but this motion isn't meaning. And history tells us that no matter how many times we promise to be good to one another, we're gonna fail each other. And the tyrant living inside of us is gonna point the finger at anyone else and say, it's their fault, I'm good. It's everyone else's fault. So there's a biblical commentary that I've been using over the past six months or so. I've actually been reading it to Nora, and I highly recommend it. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a riveting read, and I don't mean that facetiously. Go pick up a copy and start reading it. It's done an amazing job of, of reminding Alex and I and, and showing Nora the amazing storybook that, of hope that God has weaved through every single Bible story. This picture book style commentary has reminded us that it's so much, the Bible is so much more than just a rule book or a book of morals. It's not a book of heroes and its chief character is not us. The Bible is in fact not about us. The Bible is a continuous story of how a righteous and holy God who from the very beginning of the story after we screwed up and sin cursed us promised to save us. God revealed that our sin of choosing our own wisdom and security and hope left us cursed. Cursed to toil away in the dirt, to have difficult childbirth, to be sick and broken along the way, and then one day die and return to dust. The bleakest of outcomes in an ending where hope is meaningless. But because our good, good father had a different plan all along. In the very next breath, after revealing what our fate would be apart from him, he told us the end to his story. He blessed us with his hope. The Bible is a story about hope has a name and his name is Jesus. Master, Savior, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, and Emmanuel. He who promises is faithful. So what does the Bible say about hope? And I th think we can confidently boil it all, at, all down into a single phrase, that hope is a confident expectation of something good in the future. 
And I want to take a look at what he has promised us in the end. I'd like us to read Romans 8, 18 through 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is be, to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not seek, we wait for it with patience. So here Paul is painting a picture of our hearts standing on their tiptoes, eagerly trying to see the end where everything is made right. We look around and we see a creation groaning for the day when everything can be called good again. The world weighs heavy on our hearts and we are desperate to cling to anything that will give us hope. But how can, we, but how can what is unseen give us that hope? So have you guys seen those anchor tattoos? I'm sure you have. They've got the word hope creatively written around them. They've got the, the heavy chains and, and rope hanging off of them. And man, for years I wanted one of these tattoos. I thought they were so cool. The singer of my favorite band had one on his forearm and I was gonna get one, I was gonna look cool and tough and I was gonna have cool stories to share. But I chickened out. Yeah. I do not have that tattoo. But I, during the time when I was kind of work up the courage to get this tattoo, I was talking to friends about the idea, and one of the friends kind of brought up an interesting point. He struggled to see why we used an anchor as a symbol of hope. The anchor is just a really heavy object that you're going to pitch out of the boat. It's going to sink straight to the bottom of the ocean, never to be seen again, and get tangled up in the rocks and the dirt. So why do we hope in something that we can't see? So an anchor is, in fact, a very heavy piece of, of metal tied to a strong rope or chain that then hooks to the boat. Its job is to be tossed overboard and dropped to the ocean, where it's then supposed to be tangled in the sand, mud, and rocks of the ocean floor. But its job doesn't end there. Once the anchor gets tangled up in the floor, it doesn't move. And because the boat is tied to the anchor, the boat doesn't move. There's two times we use the anchor. One is in the calmness of the ocean. When the boat didn't want to drift away, they would drop anchor and it would get tangled up and it wouldn't move. And the other time is when you were, uh, there was a bad storm coming. You didn't want to get pushed into shore and your boat be broken up on the rocks of the shore, so you would drop anchor. So does the boat or anything in the boat play a role in the anchor strength? The anchor that remains unseen, dug into the dirt at the bottom of the ocean is the only thing keeping the boat grounded and stationary as the wind and the waves crash over. Jesus, who is for now unseen, is our anchor. He is the source to our grounding, and we, these broken vessels and ships, are tied to that hope's anchor, not the other way around. So we, these 
these broken vessels struggling with sin and, and year after year we fail to make the changes to better ourselves. We continue to tell little lies to make ourselves look better. We struggle with anger or drinking too much or we struggle with work becoming our identity and idol. Each year we promise to fix these things and year after year we keep failing into the same dumb screw-ups and shame begins to settle in our heart and steal our heart's joy. There doesn't seem to be any hope that we'll be, we will be better or more loved or seen. And I want to speak to your hearts. There is a hope. You can stop working to clean yourself up. You can stop polishing the outside so that no one thinks to look on the inside. Our King Jesus has come, and the work that was done on the cross is enough. When everyone else walks by you because you're just another sinner, beggar, lame, average person, he stops and he sees you. He then sits down on the dirt next to you. He says your name. Yes, he knows it. He puts an arm around you. Now, he doesn't Superman fly you out of your misery, but he sits next to you in the mess that you call home. You see, the first thing that Jesus does is he acknowledges you. He sees you. He makes you aware of his presence. And while the world is still spinning out of control, he stepped down from his rightful place of importance and lowered himself into the pit that you're laying in and sits next to you. Now the second and probably more important thing he does is he gives you a new name. He makes you a brand new creation. You are not a meaningless atom in a harsh reality. You are a son, you are a daughter of the most high, beloved cherished, sung over, danced around, and protected. You are not meaningless. And we see this example time and time again throughout Jesus' ministry here on earth. Jesus acknowledges the unclean. He sees the outcast. He greets and embraces the rejected. We see him dine with sinners. We see him talk with prostitutes. We see him moving out of a place of respect and moving, him, moving into a place of rejects. Jesus' Jesus's first move is a move towards you, without your permission, in fact. He moves in and offers hope. Our king has come. He did the necessary work that we could never do to clean us, and he is coming again to remove us from this in-between place where sin and suffering seem to be rulers. Is your belief in this hope? Or is it based on your ability, your own abilities to find meaning? Are you building every day on the hope that Christ has come, that the work is finished and that he's coming back? Like the anchor that we can't see at the bottom of the sea, Jesus is, for now, unseen, but his work is evident. We see our past selves and we look at what he and the spirit has transformed us into. We look around and we see the sanctification taking place among our brothers and sisters here. And this is why we gather here every Sunday. And even on Sundays that happen to be Christmas Day. We gather together under the name of Jesus who is our hope and anchor in this life. We gather to remember our anchor that keeps us from drifting in the calm of life and that keeps us from crashing against the rocks when life starts throwing haymakers. We are not immune to the sufferings in this life, but by the grace of God, we are not subject to its finality. One day we will see our hope face to face. 
and when he comes again on the clouds, he's going to put every, put to shame every attempt we have ever made to hope in. Our strivings will cease. Our pain and struggles will disappear. The scales of justice will swing to balanced. Our hope in this coming Savior is worth the millennia of wait. And until this day comes, we gather every Sunday to remind each other through song and through the word the promises fulfilled that he has come and that he is indeed coming again. Now, if you do not have this hope or are struggling to see Jesus, our anchor at work, I would ask that you pray and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. That you would ask the Spirit, who's the only one that can really reveal that, God, that God's truth to us, to soften your heart and to whisper the truths of God to you. And like Garrett was saying, while we sing, if you need to grab someone and, and take them back to the, the corner and pray, I ask that you do so. Ban that you, you can come back up. So we're going to take communion now. And like how Advent reminds us about where our hope, love, joy, and peace comes from, communion, something that we do every week, reminds us where our salvation comes from and the cost of that, of what, of that salvation. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, you do not need to be a member here at Redemption's Hill to take the communion. All we ask that your belief is that your belief in Jesus is real. And we're going to sing a few more songs. And at any point, you can come up front and take and eat and be reminded of the cost of the salvation, but also be reminded of the hope that the salvation gives us. We, who were once destined for death, are now alive and destined for eternal glory with our Creator. We have hope. For he who promises is faithful.